If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Imagine an ancient Greek or Roman body, and the chances are that the first picture that pops into your head is made of marble or stone. Perhaps an austere bust, or a gleaming, muscle-bound sculpture polished cold and pale. But what about the experience of living in a real body during antiquity, in all its pleasure, pain and flaws? That's the question at the centre of a new book by Caroline Vaut, which touches on where the ancients believed bodies came from, the experiences of women in patriarchal societies, and those with bodies that we don't tend to see reflected in the era's most famous art and artefacts. Eleanor Evans caught up with Caroline recently to find out more. So, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us on the History Extra podcast. We're talking today about your book, Exposed, The Greek and Roman Body. And I'd like to start by asking about this title. Why exposed? What is this word conveying here? So when we think about Greek and Roman bodies, I think even if we don't know much about the Greeks and Romans at all, we tend to think about sort of um, shiny white or bronze bodies that are kind of buff and gorgeous and, you know, on a pedestal and a bit kind of unattainable by mere mortals like us. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to kind of get behind that idea to uh, sort of take the dust covers off the Greek and Romans really and, and find out what they really looked like and what their bodies really felt like, because ultimately I don't think even they looked like that. Uh, and you write that for, uh, the admiration for these bodies, um, quote, showed that one spoke the right language and were part of a privileged club, a boys' club. Could we maybe hear more from you on that notion? And what is it about that phenomenon that has perhaps stopped us in the past from delving more into this flesh and blood reality of the bodies of antiquity? Well, I suppose, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to think about bodies by thinking about the Greeks and Romans as opposed to, say, thinking about medieval bodies or Renaissance bodies is precisely because of centuries of investment in those bodies by all sorts of people, but largely by um, elite white males. And and really from, you know, the 1400s on, when people became more and more interested in what these um, statues looked like, there became a sense that if you wanted to show yourself as being educated, 
and cosmopolitan and powerful that you would um, make a claim to share in this sort of appreciation of these kinds of bodies. And, and that, of course, has been wondrous in all sorts of ways for keeping the Greeks and Romans relevant and people like me in a job. Um, but ultimately, it's um, it's dangerous because, you know, that's an investment by, as I said in the book, it's kind of a boys, boys club. It's an investment by a particular kind of uh, individual. You know, when the poet Shelley said, we're all Greeks, you know, it's important to interrogate who he's talking about by that we there, because, you know, ultimately all of this is as exclusionary as it is exclusive. And today, quite rightly, um, people in classics departments and beyond are wanting to to get behind that image and understand Greek and Roman bodies and the representations um, in all of their diversity. You know, we now know, for example, that, that the statues were painted um, and that changes how they must have looked and that changes their relationship with real flesh, their relationship with life and so on. So it's those sorts of things in a way that kind of spurred um, the journey that I went on in, the, in, in writing this book. So taking us below the, the dust covers then, as you mentioned, how did you choose to, can you talk about how you chose to structure the book um, and how you centre the body? Yeah, so I really did want this to be a book about the body and not a book about what happened, say, in the first century AD or, you know, the sixth century BC. And so it was therefore important for me, I thought, not to go strictly chronologically because if you do that, then it becomes inevitably kind of event-driven and it becomes protagonist-driven. So, you know, if you're writing about um, the Augustan period, it becomes all about Augustus. So in order to keep it being all about the body and about experience, I decided to go for a, more of a thematic structure. And in thinking about that, I thought, well, it's actually really important to constantly keep this idea of just how similar Greek and Roman bodies are to our bodies and how different they are from our bodies at the top of the agenda. So in order to do that, I start each and every chapter with a god because, of course, you're in a polytheistic world when you're in the world of the Greeks and Romans and that's uh, certainly different from um, the world which I grew up in theologically and it helps us understand a little bit more of the terrain in which we're operating and so you've got for example a chapter on sex and society and a chapter on bodybuilding um, which makes sure that the protagonists are these human bodies. Right so so the, the the point that you just made about the gods that open each section of your book it's, it was so interesting how on the one hand they're presented as obviously drinking ambrosia eating ambrosia and, and there's that point of difference but also the myths explore pain and transformation and there's hair and fear and blood and all of it. Um, can you tell us a little more about what what anxieties or preoccupations those those can be seen to represent? Yeah I mean the odd thing to somebody like me who who went to a kind of Christian school where, you know, I was taught that kind of God was compassionate is just how vile Greek and Roman gods uh, are um, and how, how cruel and, you know, in the case of Jupiter, um, how promiscuous. These are gods who sort of live faults that define us as humans to a degree that if a human were to do it, they'd be cast out of society. And, you know, it's interesting to think about why the Greeks and Romans chose to do that. And in a sense, it is, I think, to, you know, once you make gods in man and woman's image, then in a sense, you've created a problem for yourself because you've got a world in which, um, you know, how do you maintain 
a difference. And you do that by having them be more extreme than us, off the scale almost, um, so as to emphasise the constraints, the societal constraints by which all of us have to live in contrast. And I think when you were talking about, you know, blood and dirt and these things, you were thinking about um, the stories that the Greeks and Romans tell about where they come from. And, you know, they tell stories about being modelled out of clay, which is not unlike, you know, Eve being made from Adam's rib, except, you know, that sort of thing. But they also tell stories about humans coming out of soot and and being, you know, springing out of stones. Um, and, and all of these stories are really attempts to understand and account for the fact that human bodies are leaky, bloody, dirty, um, and to account for gender difference as well. Well, on that point then, the the ideal figure that we talked about at the beginning that people think of perhaps when they think of Greek and Roman bodies due to these statues, one thing I want to pick up on definitely is the bodily experience of being a woman in antiquity, which is so often not represented in these pieces of art. Um, how did you approach um, that experience as, as a historian and as a woman as well? Yeah, it's it's interesting because actually um, I teach also at the University of Leiden and actually one of the postgraduate students there in a masterclass said um, that they felt that that chapter, Sex and Society, did women's experience in a way that was so human and so kind of obviously written by a woman and so in touch with these women. And that that's actually the nicest thing anyone's ever said um, about the book. And in a way, how I did it was I approached it through the visual you know, so to give you an example of that, I mean, one of the pieces I use is a is a marble plaque of a woman giving birth. And I mean, in some ways, the most extraordinary thing about that as an object is that it exists at all. Because if you think about our contemporary culture, how often do we see images of women giving birth? Well, actually, hardly ever, especially not, you know, on marble and, and out in, in, in the street. And so I use that sort of object in order to try and get closer to understanding what it might have been to be a woman. Because ultimately, you know, if you're looking to the literature, the majority of that is written by men. And, you know, you get a sense of how women should behave. But of course, um, description um, is not necessarily uh, the same thing as as what happened uh, on a day-to-day basis, or indeed what women thought they were doing and experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And I wanted to give a sense of, you know, the fact that life expectancy is so much shorter, women are getting married younger, um, child mortality is so high that, you know, for large swathes of women's lives, they're pregnant. Pregnancy is dangerous at any period of history, but it's very dangerous then in a world without uh, anaesthetic uh, and uh, antiseptic. And, you know, I wanted to give a real sense of of all of that, but also a sense of, of... how their bodies are particularly shaped by the anxieties of a male world where ultimately, you know, they've got to keep the woman under control in order to ensure that the children she bears are theirs because, you know, there's, there are no DNA tests, as I say at one point in this book. Right. Uh, forgive me if I'm misremem- misremembering, but is that relief that you just mentioned where the woman's in childbirth, is that where she's also got her arms sort of thrown up over her head and in that there's a sort of a, an element of gaze in that? There is. I mean, it's a really interesting relief because you're I mean, there are there's a much more famous relief um, to survive from Ostia, 
of a woman giving birth seated in a birthing chair. And there, the emphasis really isn't on her body, or at least if it is on her body, it's just as sort of, you know, on the act of of of, of the childbearing. But but in the image that we were just talking about, it's very different. And, and the woman is lying, um, having just given birth, she's lying there sprawled out, looking kind of fabulous, with her stomach slightly distended, but otherwise with her arm bent back behind her head in, in a pose that one of my colleagues in the US always calls the come hither pose, because it's a pose that opens up the body to full visual assault. And it's the kind of pose that you often see 1950s pinups in. And, and you're right that the moment you put her in that pose, and it's a pose that in antiquity, it's a pose that we associate with mythical heroines like Ariadne, who's uh, left on, abandoned on the beach by uh, Theseus and then, um, you know, found and married to uh, Dionysus. So it's a pose that is erotic and is asking, inviting the gaze and the male gaze in particular. And that's very interesting. And, and I think does show that in a sense, in male eyes, you know, woman's attractiveness is bound up with their ability to have children. So if that's one part of your uh, book that obviously uh, delves deep into the lived experience of women during this period or some women during this period, um, I'd also like to ask about the various diverse communities that are reflected also in some of the artefacts that you just don't see um, in, you know, well-known pieces like the Apollo Belvedere. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that we often forget when we think about the Greeks and Romans is that, um, you know, these are peoples who are warmongering, slave owning and enslaved bodies um, are part of what this book is interested in, too. And, you know, you might think, well, do we have enslaved bodies in the visual record? But actually we do. Um, and we have them in the Greek record and we have them in the Roman record. And they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. But uh, in the Greek, well, in there's one example I use fairly early on in the book, which is an extraordinary grave stele to survive from Amphipolis, which is in the East, but actually it's a Roman period grave marker. And it shows a guy reclining on a, on a day bed, having a drink, which is being brought to him by his servant, thereby showing his status in life and ideally um, the kind of joys of the afterlife. But in the band underneath him, you have a series of labourers slaving away um, to collect the grapes to turn into the wine that he's drinking. And then in the very, very bottom tier of the marble relief, you have a chain gang of slaves being sort of moved along by um, a hooded figure. And, you know, all of this is sort of sinister enough um, until you then read the inscription. And the inscription tells us that uh, the guy in question lying there on his couch, um, who's recently died, that he was a slave trader. The Greek actually literally translated his body seller. And so that's what this steely is commemorating. The only other thing it tells us about him is that uh, he too... Uh, is a freed man. So in other words, he was once one of them. He was once a slave. Um, and I think, you know, this is one of the most, you know, interesting pieces of material for thinking about, um, you know, changes in status, but also whether one can ever change, leave one's servile status behind. This is a world in which enslaved bodies were routinely branded and tattooed um, so as to be perpetually commodified. And all of that is sort of part and parcel of a world that we don't normally think about and a world in which 
also, you know, because of war um, and because of um, smallpox and other kinds of disease, this is a world of disfigurement, um, a world in which, um, you know, the Greeks and Romans are not very tolerant often of people that they think don't look like them. So on that point then, um, what about the, the Greek and Roman body as representations of nature or character? For people who don't look like them, there, there are some pretty challenging examples in your book of what was inferred about the shapes of bodies or faces, particularly different ones. What could you say about that? Yeah, I mean, the you know, when we're talking about Greek and Roman bodies, we're obviously talking about the bodies of people that lived in a really expansive world that certainly under the Roman Empire, ranged from Hadrian's Wall out to the Euphrates. So, you know, these are a very, very diverse set of individuals for a start. But, you know, wherever you look, really, it seems as though people are trying to bolster themselves and uh, their sense of belonging to a little community by othering everybody else and by subjecting them to stereotyping of a kind that sort of shows that they are resolutely other. And so you get kind of, you know, terrible descriptions of foreigners in in very sort of racially stereotyped terms, in terms of, you know, they're also very rude about aged bodies, so they other themselves too. But there are certainly from the reign of Alexander the Great, so from from about the th- end of the 4th century BC onwards, artists get far more interested in exploring a much, much wider range of body types. And these include bodies that have kyphosis of the spine and are depicted crouching on the ground and bent over and looking sort of as though they are in pain. It includes depictions of old women who are drunk. It, you know, So some of these are not just, it's not just that they have a physical dimension, they also have a moral dimension. And so, yes, you're right that a lot of this is quite, quite difficult to look at, I think, and is about exploring who we are in the mirror of who we claim to be not. And it, it does have some uh, harmful, might be the wrong word, but I suppose harmful legacies in terms of how um, people since have looked at that sort of physiognomy. Yes, it, it does have harmful legacies. Um, and that's something that we do need to to face, I think. In the 18th century, for example, um, there's a, a Dutch uh, scholar called Pieter Kamper, who is... Basically, he sees the Apollo Belvedere statue as the ultimate perfect form. Um, That was a fairly sort of standard thing to do at that time. Um, But uh, he develops a pseudoscience which um, hinges on facial angle theory. So he measures the uh, angle from the um, forehead of the Apollo Belvedere to the sort of top of the teeth. And it is... um, sort of you know perfectly straight um and he says that the best that that you know most european males i think he says can hope for is sort of you know an angle of 80 degrees um and then you know i think he says asian and uh, african people the best they can hope for is 70 degrees um and so you know this sort of stuff is picked up and quickly becomes used um in racialized discourse um in ways that are then you know a dangerous but b very much kind of reinforced by 
um, admiration for Greek and Roman statues that have lost their paint and now stand there as shiny white. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. No matter what they think, they find it as hard as we do to let go of the physical sense of those that we've lost. And they're treating the dead bodies in all sorts of different kind of ways, sometimes all of them at the same time in the same cemetery. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, so if we return then to um, contemporaries looking at these these ideal depictions of the body, how you've got a, a section on bodybuilding in your book. How attainable, what, would they have looked at this as an attainable thing or was it sort of purely aesthetically aspirational? I think even then uh, they knew that this was aspirational and, and not really attainable. Um, and I say that because, you know, if you look at something like um, a 5th century BC body, something like the type that is Polyclitus's spear carrier, then its head is um, actually bit too young for its body. Its genitals are a bit too small for its torso, um, etc, etc. And so what you realise is that you're looking at a composite and that that composite is giving you a sense of kind of uber male rather than something that I think anybody would have felt that, you know, they could have achieved no matter how many hours they spent in the gymnasium, which of course they did and they did exercise without any clothes on. And so there, there is a sort of sense in which they're being asked constantly to compare themselves. But, you know, these bodies are, they're the bodies of, 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 of the winners and, and of the heroes. And, and so they're always kind of going to be something we measure ourselves against in the same way that, you know, we all know really that nobody looks like the airbrushed images of Kim Kardashian, that it is an unattainable ideal. It doesn't stop us wanting to attain it, though. So I think this is as complicated then as it is now. An ancient Greek filter, perhaps, one for Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. So in, into the, those gymnasia then, um, it, it's it's fascinating to read about. I mean, there are such interesting sort of contraptions to control parts of your body while you might be exercising naked. Can you take us into, um, into that sort of environment of the gymnasia? Yeah, so they the Greeks were f- sort of famous for at least in the 5th century BC and on for exercising without any clothes on, which is a pretty odd thing for them to have done. Um, But even when they're doing that, there's a sense in which the bodies that one is looking at are not completely kind of uh, natural. And they, you know, we know that they, for example, tied up their genitals so as to stop them sort of bobbing around (laughs) while they were doing their exercise. And, you know, that I think that they they also there's a real kind of a discourse in the literature about 
why it is that they exercise without any clothes on and all sorts of, of sort of stories being told as to when that started. And one of them says, you know, it starts because somebody's loincloth falls off. And and so it becomes a sort of health and safety issue as to why they... But it, but I think it is about, you know, everybody being being equal under the public gaze and, and this sense of sort of shared physicality um, that brings everyone together um, as a community. And, you know, it's no accident that... But, when you get to the Victorian period in Britain and there's a sort of drive to to increase public health, um, that it is the Greeks that are evoked as being, you know, the ideal bodies and, and the ideal exercise regime that we should all be kind of hankering after. Uh, and if uh, ancient Greek gymnasia provided this shared sense of physicality on one hand, bathhouses for the Romans shared a, a similar sort of purpose, is that right? Yeah, they did. I mean... You know, Roman bathhouses often have gymnasia attached to them. I mean, the Roman baths are, you know, the one place really where Roman hierarchies are sort of put on hold. Um, and, you know, everybody's there bathing together in water that must have been really quite filthy often. And, you know, you, you get stories of, of you know, the Roman emperor, Hadrian, in the baths with, with everybody else. And baths were, you know, not that expensive, these public baths to attend. And so everybody goes there, it becomes a sort of, yeah, part of part of what being a Roman is. You know, it's no accident that um, Roman cities, the length and breadth of the empire, have public bathhouses because they become a mark of, of, of what the Romans see as Roman civilization. So if in one sense, everyone having access to spaces like this and sort of being equalised by all you know, their, their bodies in a similar way, how can we hear a little more on how projections of bodily magnificence or, or physiology afforded a certain type of power? I'm thinking particularly of Nero came out in your book for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, the representations of the body had right from, you know, 600 BC being something that afforded certain sectors of society power. I mean, marble bodies of the kinds that we've been talking about, the block of marble alone costs a lot of money. Moving it costs even more, carving it more again. So there is a power in this kind of representation. And when Augustus first becomes Roman emperor and says to everybody, don't worry, I'm not a tyrant, I'm not, you know, a king, I'm just kind of first among equals kind of guy that happens to be autocrat, um, then in order for that kind of bizarre and delicate message to succeed, his imagery's got to do an awful lot of work. Um, and so uh, his image makers have to get his statues right. And later emperors like Nero, uh, they're very much being modelled after Augustus when, you know, they have to seem... I mean, the challenge for an emperor is, you know, he's got to seem, he's a man like everybody else, but he's got to seem different from them. He's got to be superhuman in some senses. And if that was hard for Augustus, then it's even harder for Nero because Nero comes to power when he's still a teenager. And so what he looks like is even more under the microscope and he's kind of got to grow up during his reign and it's really interesting because his images get sort of fatter and fatter larger and larger and they get more and more contrived and so his hair gets sort of 
you know, more pin curls and, and, you know, as though he spent hours and hours with the curling tongs kind of trying to to make this, you know, uber sophisticated image, which, of course, in the end, eventually the only way for it to go is that it explodes and, and Nero gets assassinated. But, you know, it's why post-antiquity elites all over Europe were so keen themselves to, to look like to look like ancient Romans because of the power that the imperium attached to that. So we, we've covered a lot of, of um, aspects of society um, that you cover in your book, the way that they might regard their bodies with exercise, with um, sexuality, with reproduction. What about death? This this makes up uh, another important section of your book. What, what can you tell us about how Greeks and Romans perceived the body and death? What did it tell us about their attitudes to death and life after it? It's actually a really, really hard question because there's no such thing really as a Greek attitude to death or a Roman attitude to death any more than there are, you know, there's a British attitude to death in the 21st century. You know, for for some thinkers like Lucretius, who's writing under Rome, um, we're all mad to worry about dying because, uh, you know, once we're dead, there's nothing. But for other thinkers, uh, the soul lives on and might go and inhabit a very different kind of body in the next phase. It's interesting that no matter kind of what their philosophical views are as to what happens to you when you die, they spend an awful lot of energy looking after the dead body and quite often mummifying it if you're in in Roman Egypt or burying it in um, a very, very expensive marble coffin by the time you get to the second century AD in Rome. They, if you've read the Aeneid or the Iliad, you'll know that they, um, or the Odyssey, you'll know that they they sort of envisage the afterlife in very physical kind of terms and, and with a topography of its own. And so, you know, no matter what they think, they find it as hard as we do to let go of the physical sense of those that we've lost. And they're treating the dead bodies in all sorts of different kind of ways, sometimes all of them at the same time in the same cemetery. And it's really hard to try and map why certain groups cremate and other groups choose to to inter. Um, you might think it would map very neatly onto some sort of societal change, but it doesn't. Um, it seems much more complicated than that. And some of those processes annihilate and some of them, you know, are all about radically sort of preserving and some of them are you know, they turn the body almost into an artwork, if you're thinking about Roman Egyptian mummies. And then Christianity, of course, turns all of this upside down again by by the fact that, you know, there, if the, if the Greeks and Romans have spent all of their anxieties worrying about what happens to them when they die, then, you know, if you're buying into a religion that believes in corporeal afterlife, then you've got to put your anxieties on something else. <laughs> Okay, so we've covered an awful lot of ground here. Um, I might begin to to wrap us up by talking a little more about um, the the fascinating array of artefacts that are showcased in your book. And I, I must say, I loved your captions as well. And I'd like to finish up by asking, what was your your favourite bodily artefact during the course of putting together this book? I think it depends on the day of the week. <laughs> um, I'm really glad that you um, liked the captions because I wanted the captions to read very much uh, like, you know, to tell a story in and of themselves, really, without recourse to the text. I think in some ways, my favourite artefacts are are those body parts that you get in terracotta from from Italy. And 
there's a pair of breasts, for example, in the book from the Welcome Collection. Um, and these are things that you would, uh, in antiquity, dedicate at a sanctuary, uh, either to say thank you to the god for uh, curing you of pain in that area of your body, or in the hope that the god would. And and I think these are so great because it sort of seems so odd. But when we think about Greek and Roman bodies, we think of these sort of, as you say, statues like the Apollo Belvedere, which are buff and intact and sort of gorgeous. Um, these body parts are at the absolute opposite end of the spectrum and they're made of clay and they're really quite modest sort of objects. But they really give you a sense of how they thought about the body because ultimately, you know, if you if you have got a kind of raging stomachache, then all you think about is that pain in your tummy and, and you sort of become a fragmented sort of person. Um, and I think, you know, you go to the sanctuary and you dedicate your tummy or your breasts or whatever in the hope that the God can make you whole again. And I think that's really sort of powerful, um, so powerful actually that when my father was unable to walk, I, you know, when I was in Sicily, bought um, a kind of modern version of of one of those little, actually a little plaque with a leg on it you know, it really sort of chimed with me. And and so I think that would be, that would be today, at least my, my favourite <laughs> sort of group of objects. Mm-hmm. Showing again how uh, Greek and Roman concerns on their bodies are uh, echoing through many of the ages, echoing what we might feel about our own bodies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Carrie, thank you so much. It, it's been so fascinating chatting to you about um, Exposed, the Greek and Roman body. Um, next time our listeners look up at one of these marble statues, perhaps beyond the, the buff, beyond the bronze, uh, I'm sure you've given them lots to think about. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with? I suppose, you know, in writing this book, I wanted to not only give everybody a rather different view of the Greeks and Romans um, from the stereotype view that we'd received, but also to give them an opportunity, an invitation really, to think about their own bodies and the constraints that we're all kind of living um, and breathing under today and um, and the ways in which we configure our gender and um, configure ageing. And, and so I hope, I really hope that the book does that without kind of preaching and telling you exactly how to do that. It sort of, in a way, I hope, sets an agenda for the sorts of things that we should be thinking about and worrying about rather than necessarily giving you all the answers. That was Caroline Vout, Exposed, the Greek and Roman Body. It's published by Profile and is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Thank you.